This is Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Hello out there and welcome to Tap In Time. This is episode number 26 and I am Victor. I'm Claire. And I'm Gene. And then there's that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Gene. (laughs) There are few names more prominent in the contemporary bass world than Tony Levin. The list of albums on which he has contributed as a bassist or a Chapman stickist is very long and continues to grow as he continues to create content as a musician, a photographer, and an author. There are few artists to compare Tony against in the Chapman stick world. Tony has been one of the most active and successful Chapman stick players since the invention of the instrument in the early 70s. His contributions to the world of progressive music are in a league of their own. It would be hard to call it complete without his presence and solid and consistent contributions. Tony has bridged his musical endeavors with other creative outlets. A few of note would include The Road Diary, one of the longest-running musical blogs chronicling the trials and tribulations of the traveling stickist. His most recent photography book, Images from the Road, the perfect visual complement to the diary, offering a unique behind-the-scenes look into his life. And the Three of a Perfect Pair music camp, where he, Pat Mastelato, and Adrian Ballou team up to provide an up-close and personal music experience for campers at the Full Moon Resort nestled in the Catskill Mountains. We're so fortunate to have time with him in between his most recent King Crimson and Stickmen tours and his upcoming East Coast tour with the Levin Brothers, featuring his brother Pete Levin and special guest Ali Ryerson. Tony Levin, welcome to Tap in Time. Thank you, Gene. Thanks for having me. Oh, I love those intros. Gene, that was great. <laughs> Sweating bullets, man. Like, I'm just trying to get through. <laughs> uh, so, um, oh, wow. Tony, thanks so much for making time for us this morning. Um, I know that this was kind of a, a rare opportunity for us, but certainly probably for you as well, just because you've been so busy. You're just coming off of the last leg of the Stickman tour. This last month, you were pretty busy. How did it go? Uh, it was the first leg of our stick mentor because we're going to tour a lot this year and it was very successful, very happy about it. We all came down with the, what the English call a tour logie. In other words, we got a little bit sick, but not Ooh. COVID. Uh, uh, so I'm well recovered from that, but that made it uh, a good, a good interesting stress the way it always used to be because bands tend to get a little bit sick on the road. And if one person gets it and you're traveling in a van together every day, then everybody gets it. Uh, it was very successful in that <clears throat> audiences liked the new music we're doing. We had written a lot of new music for the tour and a new al- a new CD release for the tour. And uh, after two years unable to tour, that's Stickman, not me. Uh, Stickman was unable to tour for two years, so it was a great... Uh, well, it was a little uh, uh, challenging to get back on the bicycle, but also great fun and, and, and great to have new music to accompany with it. So very happy about that tour. And and since I said it's the first leg of the tour, uh, I'll, we're going to go to Japan in uh, July. And then in, uh, let me try and get this straight, in October, we'll tour again in the US and maybe Mexico. And then in November, December, we'll tour in South America. So the year is just getting started for Stickman. Oh, nice. When you travel in South America, what are some of the places you like to visit down there? Uh, I like the the way you phrased that. 
because it, 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 tours are not are not put together by the places I like to visit. <laughs> I like to go everywhere that we get to share <laughs> our music, and it happens. I do like the places we go in South America, but it, it ain't put together because Tony Hall, oh, Tony really wants to be here. So we, we generally do quite well in Argentina and Chile, and sometimes we get to go to, to uh, uh, Brazil also, and a, a few cities, but, but we have been known to play six or seven cities in Argentina and three or four in Chile. This time I think we're... I'm not completely sure, but I think we'll play pretty much one or two cities in Argentina and more cities in uh, Chile. Well, the booking is done by booking agents and not by me, needless to say. So, and also we love uh, going, getting the chance to, to go to Mexico. We're very uh, King Crimson is very popular in Mexico and is an offshoot. Uh, Stick Mendez quite well there, and I'm pretty sure we'll get there this year. That'll be great. And, and I don't want to neglect the other countries that I might go to, but I'm not sure where else we will go. Well, my wife is from Ecuador, so deep down, I'm, I'm really hoping that you get to make it out to Quito or Cuenca or one of the beautiful cities out there in Ecuador. Have not done that yet, but I look forward to it. You know, when you when you play music, when you're lucky enough to play music for a living, it's it's one of the thrilling things is that you get to share your music with people who you you maybe couldn't speak to. So there's something. Uh, it, it accentuates the magical uh, aspect of what it is we do. And and for years, many years with King, with uh, Peter Gabriel, I've been sharing that experience in, in African countries and, and places that I wouldn't normally get. And there's something, uh, like I said, magical about being either with a small group in a club or a large group in an arena or even an outdoor place and all sharing the same experience, even though you couldn't have a conversation about it because you don't speak the same language. Can you wow. give us an experience of when you were out in Africa or when you were out in one of these countries, like specifically when you realized that it doesn't really matter what we say, it's what we play? Uh, good question. I, 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 I'm not too good at remembering specifics, especially about that, because it applies to almost every show I've done uh, internationally for a long time, unless I happen to speak the language. But, but even in that case, often the show is not being run in the language that, that's the, the place. But I, I played uh, in Senegal, in Dakar. I played a wonderful, uh, w at the time, one of the biggest festivals they had had in the football arena, in the soccer arena, uh, with multiple international acts. Peter Gabriel was only one of them. And uh, as it happened, it was during Ramadan and we were unable to finish our set because the, the show was running behind and we were near the end of it. So as we went on, maybe I'm guessing 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m., uh, I could be wrong about these details, but, but, but suddenly the sun began to come up and that meant everybody had to go home bap, immediately that moment. And so the, 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 the show suddenly came to an end and we, we had to hustle out the back in order to be able to get a van and get in front of the, the lines of people leaving the arena, or we would be stuck there half the day. Good fun. <laughs> wow. Well, a gig's a gig, right? I mean, if, you know, we're, if we're racing the sun, so be it, right? Yeah. We, we should talk on, or at least touch on the most recent uh, Crimson tour as well. Sure. Last year, really lucky that uh, Crimson was able to tour the U.S. through the summer and then Japan, a notable tour at the end of the year, uh, November and December. Very lucky because, of course, in the time of COVID, it ain't easy. It is not a given that you'll be able to complete your tour. A lot of bands started their tour, were unable to complete it. I would say some of the success was blind luck and some of it was very smart management who, who tried to keep us safe 
and isolated by us. I, I don't mean just the seven people in the band, but the 20 or so of us who travel together, if you, if you can think about that it's not easy to avoid hotel elevators and and just uh, uh yeah venue catering issue uh, places when when covid is more rampant than it is now so we we're really lucky we were able to complete that and then japan invited us in, or we were able to get an invite to wangle an invite into japan in november the first international band allowed in of the year uh, because japan was very cautious last year and no sooner had we got there and begun our six days of quarantine in the hotel room, and that was a whole other interesting story, no sooner had we got there than a new uh, uh, strain of COVID came out, and Japan closed its borders not only to bands, but to all international travelers. So how lucky were we that we were there, we were able to do our tour completely as if that hadn't happened, but uh, there weren't any international people coming in after that. And so uh, I could be wrong about this, but I think we were the only band allowed to tour in Japan, international band allowed to tour in Japan last year. And that was very lucky. It was a, a uh, mixed blessings tour for me because we knew going into it that that Japan tour would be the last tour of this lineup of King Crimson and maybe of any lineup of King Crimson. So it was sort of a farewell tour, even though it wasn't announced that way. And as you can imagine, for me, after 40 years playing in the band, uh, there was a lot to it. It was quite an emotional tour and, and very special in a number of ways. And uh, we wrapped it up with our last show in Tokyo in December, I think on the 9th. And uh, that was as far as the foreseeable future. I can't predict about King Crimson uh, compl with complete accuracy. But as far as I know, that was the last of the King Crimson touring. So it was pretty special. Wow. Yeah. Wow. An amazing band and uh, an amazing live show and a lot of drummers, right? I mean, once plenty, right? But I mean, man, you, you handle that pretty well, uh, working with uh, multiple drummers. And uh, what a treat it must have been to share that with Pat, who you've become so close with over these past few years musically. You guys are so close. Yes, yes. Pat and I, Pat Mastelotto and I have played together a whole lot since the mid-90s when he joined King Crimson. And, and we, we tour in Stickman together and we tour in King Crimson and we do other recording projects together if that was, weren't enough. Sure. And indeed, it was a challenge, not, not in difficulty, but an interesting challenge in King Crimson when, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, Robert Fripp, our, our, the founder of the band, got the idea of having three drummers. And for me as the bass player... When he told me about it, uh, I took a deep breath, as has happened before in King Crimson, and I thought, I thought, well, well, that's going to be a challenge, and uh, it was a challenge, but not in the way I thought. Uh, I won't go too deeply into it, but it was fascinating and different, and very, very King Crimson, very out, outside of the normal uh, area, and it took a lot of uh, uh, musical uh, uh, experimenting. And, and being present and, and try, just trying to find the best approach for me as a bassist and a stick player, of course, uh, to find the best sound and the best approach to playing with this very different kind of drumming. But the drumming wasn't what I expected it would be with three drummers. So that made it, uh, again, another curveball. And, and I, felt, I felt good about it pretty much from the beginning. What helps a lot with King Crimson, it's a very conscientious band, is that we rehearse a great deal. So I didn't have to just come in with an idea and and uh, do it and, and then have it work out or not work out. I had really weeks and then eventually months of, of time to experiment with different ideas and different sounds, subtle changes in the sound and, and, and 
eventually I became pretty comfortable with the approach I had with, with the three drummers. It helps a lot that there are three very excellent musicians and, and not, not wild card and, and making things different all the time. So there was a, a consistency to it, which helped me to, to find a bass approach to play with it. Oh, wow. That's just screaming for, uh, <laughs> for what? Finding a way to log in with one drummer is sometimes a challenge for me, and you're doing it with uh, two, and then you're doing it with three. I just don't know what to do with that. <laughs> well, the, the locking in was not an issue at all. Not, not a problem. Everything was very much in time with King Crimson, which is probably another essay I could write about how we do that. We, we definitely, because of the physical distance between the drummers, the two on the on the left on the far end, uh, we have to play with headphones on, and, and we have in ear monitors, and uh, we're very good at very fastidious about monitoring. That's important. So uh, that wasn't an issue, and and the way they the drummers worked out their arrangements didn't have a cluttering of bass drums. Really, only one guy would be playing the bass drum. So who I locked in with, I'm not saying that I only lock in with the bass drum, but but who I focused on changed among the three drummers so i had to have very good monitoring but there wasn't any cluttering if it were just three drummers playing a part yeah it would be a mess and i would have to i don't know what i would do but i would have to have a a, a strategy that works out uh, a way to deal with that indeed i needed to have a strategy but a different way it really was less cluttered than it could be with one drummer sometimes depending on the drummer uh however there was a lot to there were a lot of drum uh, events happening every bar, maybe every beat. So I, I uh, maybe maybe I thinned my sound out a little bit. I took a little bit of low end off, and and I I, I really don't remember because it's years ago that I fashioned the the sonic approach to it. But but I fiddled a lot with distortions and ways to to not be. Uh, you know what? It's funny. As I try to put into words, I realize I never really put it into words, even to myself, what it is I try to do. I try to musically find a space for myself that worked to my ears with, when I played with the drummers. And, and yes, that sometimes involved different amping and different uh, distortion, which I used consistently in the band. But then within that framework, I would change instruments and sounds in a subtle way on different pieces. That, that's an interesting um, topic. I think in, in general, three drummers aside, do, do you find that um, does your rig or your equipment change a lot between different musical acts that you're touring with? How does that change depending on, you know, bass versus stick? Yeah, it's a huge question. Maybe just a tiny, tiny amount of info on, on what you're doing. It's probably a lot, right? That's a, lo a wonderful question. I'm smiling because it, it's... Here's a description of the difference. In King Crimson and in Peter Gabriel, I have a, a bass tech, a wonderful bass tech, and I have the ability to have two trunks of basses and gear and pedals and things like that. Okay, that's those two bands. In Stickman, it's me in a car. <laughs> and I, don't, I, don't, I can't even take an amp because uh, uh, we sometimes have to fly, so I have to be able to fit into two suitcases, what, what, or sorry, one suitcase and, and carry the stick. So it's, it varies a huge amount by, according to what I'm allowed to bring. With, with uh, King Crimson, with Peter Gabriel, a, a little bit 
normal. I have a, a normal signal path and, and quite a few pedals. But with King Crimson, with the indulgence <clears throat> that it gives me, and all the time we rehearse, remember I mentioned we rehearse a lot, uh, I have a, a, a tremendously complex setup, so much that I, I need help at the beginning of a tour leg to remember what it is. And Michele, my wonderful bass tech for many years, is very helpful with that. By that, I mean, uh, well, let's take the bass side of the stick. I, I will go through a pedal board, but then I will <clears throat> have on the side a volume pedal, which can fade into the degree I want a Kemper or two Kempers. Uh, Kemper is a, a, uh, a modeling device that gives me any variation of guitar amp that I want. So I can bring that into the degree I want with a, with a, uh, a volume pedal. And then those two signal paths, in addition to a direct signal path, are all mixed together. <laughs> and, and that goes out to, the, to my ears and to the front of house. So that's pretty complex compared to, to uh, my stick bass signal path when I'm on the road with, with stick men, which is I go through a couple of pedals and that's it. Right out to the front of the house, no amp, no uh, camper on that, on that side of the stick. I did see, a, I was watching, a, I think there was a recording of a show from April 22nd of Tentacles. And so wow. uh, I was enjoying that and uh, saw that you had kind of one pedal to your right there. It was kind of closest to Pat. And uh, when you were doing the vocal stuff, I saw you kind of banging on that. And I, I, I did <laughs> notice that when he's in Sigmund, it's kind of like we're in the garage, you know, like we're just like, just like, you know, like what's laying around, let's plug that in. It feels like with Stickman, it's just kind of like, <laughs> these two guys are easy. They're going to let me kind of go for it. Whereas Crimson, it seems like a little more disciplined. There's more people involved. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you if ever you've seen one of these um, M440 SEs. So this is a, a volume pedal. It, not like there's no plug here. It's just a, a guy based that called DB Instruments. But what it does is it fades in. Uh, different signal paths so you can have it go to two different amps and i've had a lot of fun with this um, that sounds like something i need <laughs> it's, it's really cool because it's a volume pedal right but yeah. like it, it, generally what i'll do is i'll just push it through like reverb and then on the other side it'll be all the big delays and wow. um, processing um db instruments is the guy that makes him and i've just mm. he's like, this guy out of texas super nice he'll call you up on the phone and make mm -hmm. sure that it's working the way you like it but um um, another question I did want to ask about, um, it was tentacles. So tell us about the EP. Oh, uh, sure. But, but, but also because you mentioned pedals, it, it just struck me how influenced we are by effect pedals and, and how much they help us do what it is we want to do, or they don't help us. And in that case, we're, we're forever on the hunt for a better pedal 
to I know I'm that way with compressors on the the bass side of the stick. I, I began compressing it the day I bought bought the instrument back in the seventies, and I've always been happy with the compressors that I have. But I've always been uh, if I just had a one that I won't say a better one, but one that worked better for my needs for the instrument, then it would be better. And so I've changed only maybe four or five times compressors okay. that I use. Yeah, we got to talk compressors with Tony. Levin. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so, so Tony, um, you know, this was, uh, you know, this is this is an awesome conversation. Do you have any advice then for those of us that use our stick as the bass instrument in a band? Um, whether it's your playing technique, whether it is what compressor settings you might use, what kind of EQ you might throw in uh, in there or whatever. Uh, you know, that's most of my playing when I'm playing out is done as the bass instrument in the band. Occasionally I'm playing on the melody side, but I'm always playing on the bass side and I'm always the low end. And, uh, you know, I know what I do, but, you know, I'm an amateur. You know, Gene's a semi-pro, Claire is Claire. And Rodrigo is Rodrigo, but I'm just Victor. So any advice for someone like me that, uh, that that doesn't have a lot of musical background? I came straight into the stick. I didn't come from the bass guitar background. And so I don't really know a whole lot about these things. And I'm surviving, but, you know, hey, give me some advice. Well, I think being just Victor is a great thing. So my advice to you is to be immersed in being just Victor. Your approach to, to the stick sound and the way you do it is as valid as mine or anything I could tell you about how to do it. And and I would, if I heard you in concert, I would learn a little bit from your pedals and from your approach and, and the same way you do maybe if you see me play. Uh, as far as advice, I'm not, I'm not big on giving advice. I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm trying to uh, up my game and learn to get a better sound and learn to play better. And, and when I hear other people, I, I pick up, hey, maybe... To be honest, sometimes I'll hear another player do something something I don't like, something that kind of I hits my ears is wrong, and I'll maybe they let the strings ring, the string they're not playing a little bit more, and I can hear it, and I think, wow, I don't, I want to be sure I don't do that, <laughs> and in fact, I pick that because I do do that. <laughs> I, I notice when I record and I really listen carefully. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm doing that, and for that reason, I kind of keep a, a what do you call it? A, Here's a guy who wouldn't know about hair products, but what do you call that squishy band that you put around your hair? <laughs> like a scrunchie? Yeah, scrunchie. Yeah. Thank you. So I keep a scrunchie <laughs> around the stick, uh, hopefully out of the way. But when I need to put, pull the scrunchie down to the open uh, lower uh, notes, I do that. And the scrunchie saves the day. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, as you can tell, I have no method. I have a method that that is flexible and it's the way I play the bass side of the stick. But I think uh, just as valid as the way other people do it. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated with the, an instrument with such a wide, a broad range of things you can do on it that almost everybody brings something to it that nobody else did. And that's one of the great things about the instrument. And I'm a, yeah. fan, I'm a fan of that more than a teacher of like, here's the way you've got to do it. Having said that, I, like, as I mentioned, I always compressed the bass side. The first few years, I also put a... a phase or what was that mxr uh, phase 90 phase thank you <laughs> you're, you're helping me out here yeah i don't do that anymore because it makes me sound like 1976 and that was great then uh, and i don't want to sound like that anymore uh, uh yeah so that was my approach to to the sick when i first got it i came to it from being a bass player unlike uh, unlike you uh, victor and 
the the stick had something wonderful that the bass didn't have, which is that it it speaks really clearly on very low notes. So I could play very low, very fast if I wanted, and it was very percussive, as you know, and and it just was clear. It cut mm-hmm. through. It was audible. It it wasn't a mess. If I played those same notes, and I could on a low string on the bass, it it would be muddy, and I just wouldn't play them. So I like that. Uh, I didn't try to get the power out of the stick that the bass has, that my bass has, every bass is different, but sometimes I could just play a low E, you know, I, I don't need to sing to you a bass part that just E, 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 that's really cool. So I didn't think of the, the stick as, okay, how do I get that? How does this be my instrument for playing heavy rock on E blues? Instead, luckily being in progressive uh, music situations, Peter Gabriel and then soon after King Crimson, I, I, I looked at it to, to how can I bring something different to this uh, uh, realm of music than the bass would would do? And how can I have that instrument help me come up with different bass ideas than I would come up with the bass? And, and for many years I did that. And it, actually through the years that hasn't changed too much occasionally i'll be asked to play a stick on a rock piece where i would have chosen the bass and occasionally i'll do that for somebody but generally i i choose the stick for a reason which is it has to do somewhat with the the things that the stick gives me that it does easily it's very very clear down low it can play chords of course it can jump from low to high very easily to very high and uh, uh many other things like that you know stick players and, and touch guitar players know the things that that the instrument gives you. And I can't say that I'm one of those who brings to an instrument things that it doesn't give you. I'd like to be that, but looking back on my career, what I seem to be pretty good at is, okay, this bass, this bass sounds good if you just play a low E. I'll, I'll just play a low E on it. <laughs> That's the kind oh, of guy yeah. I am. And yeah. the stick, all right, the stick, I could do this this unusual bass line at the beginning of, of uh, Discipline, uh, and I'll just do that. Sorry, elephant talk. I, I'll just do that, and oh, it's it's t- if it were tuned a little different, then it would be easier. Okay, I'll just tune it a little different, and I'll tune it to a, the, an augmented fourth, and it'll be really easy to play, and it'll give a different sound. That's the kind of guy I am, and and kind of always have my ear out for uh, a way to have a distinctive part that's valid for the music being played, and to have the instrument help me find that. Sorry, I'm going on and on about. <laughs> We're, we're, we're glad to hear it. Thank you so much. I t- tagging into sort of the, the song. Just while we were, while we were chatting there and, and Claire, I want you to get to your question, but there's, so in back of Tony here, there's a couple instruments. Um, well, that was my question is about the instruments. So, oh yeah. So cool. Oh, wow. Hold on. Screenshot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, go ahead. I will finish my water though. Um, I, I guess my question was more, um, we've talked a bit about, you know, the sound, but I'm curious, is there something specific about the stick that you play? Um, we, we get really geeky here on the podcast about string choices and frets and this and that, and then pick, you know, um, stickists are so weird about which pickup do you use? Oh my goodness. It's so critical. Um, so I'm curious, (laughs) what, what do you use? Why is it very specific? Is it not, you know? Yeah, we're on the edge of our seats here. Yeah. Oh, gee. Oh, gee. You're going to be disappointed. <laughs> Prepare yourself, Stickosphere. Tap Nation. What I took interest in is that Claire said water the way I say it. 
but we're both from Boston. Let's face it. <laughs> it was inevitable. It was inevitable. We call it WADA. Vic, we'll take WADA. a break. So I want to know, Claire, why didn't you say WADA? I'm not originally from Boston. So ah, the there, truth the, comes out. The truth out. comes out. I am I am a adopted Bostonian, kind of. I, I work okay. in Boston, yeah. yeah. I've, I've been here half my life, though. You were born More than with half my your R's. <laughs> I, however, uh, I went to school at a pretty, pretty young age, maybe 19. I went out of Boston and got uh, humiliated because of my Boston accent, and I lost it. But if I'm around Boston, Bostonians for long enough, I get it back, or some of it. But indeed, I would have said, Claire, Claire, hey, Claire. Okay. Yeah. How about that water? What are you talking about when you say oh, water? Oh, man, pa- pack the car. Yeah, yeah. Get the so Fenway pack. Uh, but as for the other subject, my stick, my Chapman stick, in fact, I, I'm, I'm not geeky about it and I, I barely know what I have on it. I, have, I, have, I own two Chapman sticks. They are the same. It took me years to realize that I needed, what I needed was a backup in case something goes wrong with one, it never does, but just in case. Or, or if one is stuck out on the road and the, the, the gear didn't, for instance, the King Crimson tour that ended in early December, I just got the, the equipment two weeks ago. The rest of it was on the road. So good thing I have two Chapman sticks or I would have had to borrow one for the tour I just did. But I have, it in, in, I have them both in the same tuning, the same pickups. Uh, I don't know exactly what strings are on it, but that would be Chapman stick strings, <laughs> the ones that they recommended that I use. And I think my tuning is a tad different than, than what most people do, but maybe there's a name for it. But uh, here's an easy way to describe it. The low, the low bass string is the same as the low guitar side string. I don't, is, is there another way to describe it? You know. Just an octave down? Oh, correct. Yeah. Okay. It's a C. So I have a low oh, okay. C is the lowest bass note and a low C is the lowest guitar side note. Uh, the reason for that for me is I do a lot of playing of in octaves of those two strings, those two strings that are adjacent, uh, kind of a heavy metal sound on the guitar side and as good a powerful bass sound as I can. And I'll, in stick man, I'll do that quite a bit and, and provide what sounds like a guitar and bass line behind Marcus soloing, Marcus Reuter. And, and that's, really difficult to do if they're a half a tone apart and really easy to do if it's just a, a, a barring across the two of them. Tell us a little bit, I know we're talking about gear, but tell us a little bit about working with Marcus. Cause I know that he kind of comes from a classical background and, 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 you know, he, between him and Pat, there's so much talent, you know, how do you focus that? How do you like, there's so much going on. Yeah, there is a lot going on. For, lot three, going on. for three guys, I like to think we make an awful lot of noise. It sounds like way more than three people. It does. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. yeah, so there's a lot to that. First of all, Marcus and Pat were a band. They had done an album before I ever met Marcus. So when we had the need for a third player in Stickman, when Michael Bernier left the band, uh, Stick Player, uh, uh, Pat recommended Marcus as an ideal guy, and, and it didn't take long for me to realize that he was indeed. He's a very different kind of player than I am, and that's a good thing. And and as will befit any band that's gone... I've been in quite a few bands, and the ones that work well, well, they're all different. But one thing, that you, in my estimation, you need to have a band that works well is for the guys, guys or women, to, to have mutual respect for each other's musicality. Personally, yes, also, but especially musically. So 
one of the reasons I'm happy in that band is we trust each other musically. So when Marcus's ideas inevitably are very different musical ideas than I would have, instead of me bristling and thinking, well, I kind of really like this idea I had, instead I, I hopefully grow and learn from his very different approach. So uh, Marcus, I, I can't really speak exactly about his history, but at one time he played the Chapman stick, he envisioned improvements to it, and he designed an instrument he called the U8 or the U10. Uh, which he manufactures in Germany, and he gives lessons on it, and he plays it very well. So he has a, in my estimation, a superb technique on the instrument. So that's the first place that we we uh, uh, vary from each other. My technique ain't so good. Uh, I, I learn from seeing people with better technique, but in fact, uh, trust me, I know about this because I record a lot at home. <laughs> my technique could use a lot of work, and in no way am I like Marcus in that way. And also his his musical uh, proclivity, his, 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 what he wants to do with music is is more ambitious and more thought out and and more classical than mine. And and so his compositions are really uh, generally uh, very extremely. I'm not going to say very unique. That's the wrong use of words. They're unique. He he tries to take it in a musical direction that's different than anyone else, mm-hmm. and and succeeds in it, and that's great. Whereas my first inclination is being a, a guy who grew up with blues and, and, I don't know, 50s jazz and things like that. Uh, I only turn left and get weird if if something makes me do that. Okay? So, so as a writing team, the three of us really, because Pat contributes too, it's interesting because I'll, I'll uh, take a simple idea and suggest something to Marcus and he'll play something completely different than I would ever dream of. And then I take his part and maybe write a simple melody over it. So there's a lot of that. So uh, in my estimation, that's a good thing. And that makes the band work as a band in the way I want a band to work, which, which is that it doesn't sound like another band. We're not trying to be King Crimson. Some might think we are, but we're not at all. And our process is different than King Crimson. We're trying to be ourselves, and and usually we succeed at that. Uh, we don't really try to, well, we got to get an album out. We don't have anything good. Let's just do that. We don't try to do that. So interesting. I, I think I could speak for hours about the differences and similarities between Marcus uh, and me, and and I think it's also interesting the way we perform is different. He I, occasionally I look over at him and I see him just kind of looking straight ahead, and his fingers are playing all of the right notes, none of the wrong ones, and effortlessly. And he's just looking out of the audience, and I'm generally bent, o- stooped over, looking at my strings, trying to find the right note. And often I do. Often I do find the right notes. <laughs> You've been lucky till now, right? I just I've been, keep... been kind of lucky, but, but sometimes the fingers just hit on the, on the wrong notes. And uh, then I try to make the wrong notes work. And, and you know, a little, a little bit of a different adventure on my side of the stage. And uh, uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And I think uh, Stickman is a very interesting band because you have the two of us so different, and yet we both are playing bass notes and guitar notes and trading back and forth who's the bass player, who's the soloist. And then you have Pat Mastelotto in the middle, who's not a normal drummer in any sense. He has electronic, he has acoustic drums, but he also has electronic drums, which includes loops and samples and samples of us playing parts that, that we just couldn't fit into the notes that we couldn't fit in because we're busy doing something else. Oh, so he's back there kind of playing playing a little bit of stick and a little bit of U8 himself, huh? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And he might throw in Robert Fripp's voice <laughs> or Toya's voice. He has all kinds of things at his disposal and he's a very much a, a, a renegade. So you can't, you can't predict what he's going to do, but it's always interesting. And, and especially when we improv, if, if you just say to most drummers, okay, let's improv. They're going to play the drums, but Pat might, might play a vocal or he might play chords. He might play bass notes, stick notes, or he might play drums. You know, there was a great quote on your page about, I think from Robert Fripp, who said, Tony Levin is not a bassist. He just happens to play the bass. That's interesting. I, I just, yeah, I, I saw that. But was that on my page? Or probably not. And that was on the Tony Levin page, I'm pretty really? sure. Yeah. Oh. Your webmaster's going back behind your back. I, I'm trying to say, I'm thinking I write that page and I, I don't remember <laughs> saying that. One, there's this one quote where it's showing all the songs and it's like the title is, uh, there's a few to add here. It was like listing all the like songs that you played on or all the bands that you played in. And it was, uh, the webmaster was just like, I'm going to get back to this. Yeah, this actually, it's, it's me. I write those things. And, and I, there was a time that I thought, well, years ago when I had, when I didn't need a webmaster and I had my own site and I, and I wrote in HTML all the stuff, when things were easy for me, I did keep a, an up-to-date uh, discography. But, you know, I play on records all the time when I'm home and I got tired of doing that. And then the new, uh, when I switched uh, the websites and it's a different way, I can write, but it's, it's kind of harder to write the stuff. And so I just, I really should take that down because it's so hopelessly out of date. But I, I take the blame for all of the faults on my website because the writing is all mine. <laughs> and thank you. It's, 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 you know what? It's really sweet knowing that somebody looks at it because it's the kind of website, it's not like Facebook that I get answers. I, I put the stuff up and I just uh, put it out there and hope that somebody sees it or not. You know, <laughs> So it's a, it's a hoot for me to talk to someone who's actually paid attention to some of the stuff I put up well, there. Well, the hit counter should be at least one. <laughs> Gene Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, it was fun. I was, because, you know, I was, I'm such a big fan of the 80s stuff, you know, the stuff with, uh, with uh, Adrian and, and um, just as the quartet. And that was the stuff that spoke to me. I was playing in a trio at the time. Uh -huh. So, you know, maybe we've talked about Pat. We've talked a little bit about Marcus. W will you tell us a little bit about playing with Bill? Sure. Bill had, Bill Bruford had a big influence on me. In 1980 or 81, I, there I was in a room with Adrian Ballou, whom I didn't know. Robert Fripp, whom I did know. I had played on his album and, and stuff, Peter Gabriel stuff with him. And Bill Bruford, a drummer I didn't know, and I wasn't really versed on King Crimson, what it's about, or Adrian's playing, and, and what a huge influence all three of them had on me musically. Bill approached things, you, you could say, in a bit of a British... I hadn't played with British drummers, not only <laughs> with progressive rock drummers. I had played with American drummers who are all different, but let me simplify things most bass players american bass players and most american drummers that i had heard try would try to get the groove right to, to get it solid the the ethic wasn't well let me make up a kind of music that no one ever heard before that never entered my mind before now i'm in the room with bill bruford who never is bothered with anything but but uh, reinventing uh, what drumming is and playing things in his own unique way and come oh he hears a part he'll he'll he won't jump in with the bass he'll play in a whole different time signature as will Robert Fripp so suddenly I'm in a band where where uh, 
she, the Chapman stick is going to be a lot more useful to me than my rock bass because I'm not holding things down here. Things are galloping in different directions. And uh, the first rehearsals, probably I did try to hold my instinct, said, oh, hold it down. And I don't mean hold it back from, from tempo-wise. I mean hold it, uh, simplify it. And, and I did that to some extent, but it became musically, it became clear to me that musically, I'm better off joining Bill and just being a wild card, another wild card, <laughs> and letting the two guitars do their cross-pollination uh, and things like that. And so, and so we, the four of us came up with what became the sound of that discipline era of King Crimson, and the sound and the approach, uh, very valid and, and very different than anything that had gone before. And, and for me, uh, just lucky to be, as many cases in my career, just lucky to be the guy who was invited to be in that ensemble. Yeah, it feels like the Chapman stick was in the right place at the right time. And it, and it feels like you were with guitarists that were like, yeah, go for it. Let's see what happens. You know, let's see what happens. And, and yeah. uh, I'm reminded each time I listen to that track frame by frame, which is really probably like the, the pinnacle for me of, of, of just like, hmm. This quartet has achieved this track, you know, and the way that things come together and the way that I'm not really quite sure what time it's in. I've never really counted it out. I just know that, it, you know, it's it's a fantastic ride. That's that's always been one of my favorites. And then watching you you know, sing it as well. There's that great um, live show from Tokyo, which really captured the essence. I think it was uh, during the beat tour. It was a great, a great tour. Well, I know the piece really well, and how thrilled was I when, a couple of years ago when Crimson decided to add it to the repertoire of the new band. That was thrilling. We didn't play it that many times, but uh, we did play it, and, and good fun. We changed it a little bit, but yeah, a great piece that I agree with you. It sort of expressed what the band could do and what the band was about in a very good way. And by the way, it always was really popular in Mexico, that piece. I don't know why. Who knows how these things happen? You play that piece in Mexico and it's the high point of the show. You play it somewhere else and it's one of the pieces in the show. Who knows why these Good rhythm. things happen? Yeah. Rhythm. Rhythm. Yeah. Like, you know, just, I don't know if you... And, just, and I get, if nothing else, I get to do it every year. You you had mentioned the, the uh, music camp that Adrian and Pat and I put on every summer. And it's a wonderful experience for us as well as hopefully for the campers. But but uh, we play a concert at the end of it, and we always do that piece. So I, I get to play it once a year, for sure. So we're, we're tight with Matt Tate and Dean Pascarella and all those cats. So we, we kind of cross over to that touch world as well. And so it's... Those guys who have more technique than me, I know them very well. <laughs> I loved what you said about Matt Tate. Um, one of our sections is reminiscing about Freehands Academy 2014, and I loved how what you said about Matt and um, how how you'd like be off making like a cup of coffee or something. You'd, you'd come back and Matt would be arranging all the Chapman stick players. You know, he'd be getting them seated and getting one. You know, made sure everyone had an amp and stuff like that. And, you know. <laughs> uh, the way I should be. <laughs> It was 
So I wanted to ask, um, I'm not really a total drummer geek. I don't know the names of the drummers in a lot of the bands that I do listen to, but one name I am familiar with uh, that you've played with in Liquid Tension Experiment um, is Mike Portnoy. So uh, yeah, I know about Mike only because he plays for Neil Morse and I've seen him in concert and you know he dropped my jaw because he's back there on the drum kit and he's at times ruling the stage from the back. Uh, and so, you know, so I, I really like Mike Portnoy uh, uh, just, you know, because of his stage presence, not to mention, obviously he's one of the best drummers uh, in, 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 in rock and roll history, but how did liquid tension experiment come about? Well, good question. And Mike is a great drummer and a, a force, like you said, like you can tell if you see him on stage, he's a force in, in the music that he does. Great guy. And, uh, uh, okay, so many years ago, we formed the band without sort of without knowing each other. That was before Jordan Rudess joined Dream Theater, and when Mike Portnoy was in Dream Theater, so there was some right. some badness to it. But the uh, my sense of it then and the same now was the three the three of those the other three players uh, uh, Jordan Rudess, John Petrucci, Mike Portnoy uh, they're virtuosos virtuosi to use the correct word on their instrument me less so i'm not i'm not a slouch but uh, they're really amazing technical players aside from the other musical things about them and they uh, really i don't i never asked why but they they decided to be in a band or tried this band with me knowing that i would lag behind a little bit technically and it's the same to this day i i'm i'm really a number of steps behind which is unusual for me because historically the band that I've been in for most of my life I'm a step or two ahead of the other guys because I have classical training I have some technique and I know what's what's going on musically so it's it's been good for me that band <laughs> to be the slow guy the guy who's always playing catch up and they keep calling you back right I mean, they keep calling like, me back it's amazing and I keep saying, <laughs> you showed up you know like, uh, yeah I don't I don't bug them by asking over and over again why me why am I in this band uh, <laughs> but but it is amusing and and it is uh Above all, extremely challenging for me. A lot of bands I do are challenging for me, but this one uh, in spades is really, really not easy for me to keep up with them in any way. Uh, so I was very pleased when during the lockdown uh, a few couple of years ago, we just the, the guy said, hey, what if we do what no one else is doing? Let's actually get together in a studio, not record remotely, but write stuff and do an album. And we luckily were able to do that uh, successfully. Nobody got sick and we came out with a heck of an album that I would have a great deal of trouble playing live. <laughs> and <laughs> interestingly, uh, once we were halfway through the first album, I realized that I need to play Chapman Stick a lot in this band because I just cannot keep up technically on bass. I can't play that fast on bass. And it's a challenge to play that fast on the Chapman Stick. So it's, it's a, a good outlet for me to try and up my technique on the Chapman Stick. And it ha has been... Uh, since the beginning and a very uh, fascinating band to be in. We never toured much. It is the nature of that kind of band. Uh, it, it is a band, but it's also a project. So in other words, the uh, each guy in it has another band. It's their main band. 
And when you add that, this has happened to me a number of times in my career, when you add that all up, it becomes very difficult to put a tour together because everybody has their priorities. That's a different, maybe for me, Peter Gabriel and King Crimson and Dream Theater. And with Mike Portnoy, there's about 20 bands that are his main band, Neil, Neil Morse for sure. <laughs> yeah, Mike is, uh, overwhelms us all in the amount of things he can do uh, happily. And uh, Anyway, so it became difficult to do. We did a one-week tour a couple times, and that was the most we could squeeze out. And maybe there will be some touring in the future. It's a great band, and it just uh, is the nature of the way it came together, that, that it, it, it's not, not first priority on anybody's list. So the... the the ability to tour just depends on on who can do it. And I like the thing about touring. First of all, I love playing live and sharing music more than recording. I like recording, but I love playing live. And some music uh, deserves to have a chance to grow. And it really only grows when you play it in front of people. It's different than making the recording, putting it out, and that's the end of it. Some music, that's the, what should be the end of it. But sometimes it's good to, to let it grow and let it become what it really wants to be. And so in a way, it's a shame about that band that we never got to do a one month tour or one month a year tour or to do what Stickman is able to do and Levin Brothers is able to do uh, because those are are bands that, that can be active every year. So Liquid Tension Experiment, great band and great potential. And I'm thrilled that we keep putting out albums uh, and it's too bad that we can't tour more. Hmm. All right. Well, no, thanks for that uh, little summary. That's awesome. Let, let, let me also well, add, since I'm... Since I'm uh, raving or ranting about the, the technique of those guys uh, when we did tour if i can remember back to it we're, we're the dressing room the afternoon of the show and the other three guys are practicing all day long and me the guy who really should be practicing doesn't even have an amp backstage i got my stick there and i'm kind of play a couple notes and they're all day they, they don't just they're gifted and they have worked very hard, but that's not even all of it. They work very hard every day on their technique and their ability. It just doesn't come magically to those guys, to even to go guys like that. Wow. And that's my yeah. lesson for the day. Don't be like me, be like them. They could probably use a little <laughs> more sunlight, right? Is that what you're saying? A little, a little more vitamin D? Like, <laughs> I don't know what it takes. <laughs> You mentioned the Levin Brothers, so let's talk about that. So I have this wonderful opportunity to play music with my brother, and uh, I'm, and, and you get to play with Pete. Yeah, very special to me. Uh, not very stick-oriented. I have yet to play the touch guitar in a jazz context. It could be done, and I hear Steve Adelson does it very well. A few guys do it very okay. well. For me, okay. not so easy. For me, that attack of the low strings of this Chapman stick is not what I want uh, when I play jazz or when I hear jazz. Maybe it could be done. Maybe I should try harder. But in fact, I want the, the opposite. I want a, a, a note that goes bouah. I'm exaggerating, but instead of bah, bouah. And, and so the upright uh, lends itself to that. The, the bigger string takes a little longer to get going. And, and I don't know the physics of it, but uh, I tend to play upright in jazz. Anyway, a number of years ago, uh, well, gee, think about this. We've been both musicians since we were young kids. And it was only 10 or maybe 12 years ago that Pete and I decided, hey, let's do it, get together and do our own album. And let's do it in the style of the music that we grew up loving, which was what was called uh, uh, cool jazz in the 50s, which was very simple compared to the way it became. Actually, bebop was more complicated even at the same time, but but uh, uh, simple like 
like tracks would be two, three minutes, four minutes long. That's all. And each each player would solo on maybe just the verse, and then another guy would solo on the chorus, then do the piece, and it's done. And and Pete and I thought, well, let's just for the fun of it, let's do a couple of those songs, but let's write new music, but in that style. That was fun, and we did that album. <clears throat> Uh, album did well. We, we made a vinyl record of it. That's always a treat when you can afford to do that. And uh, we toured with it a bit. And gee, this is fun. And so let's let's do this some more. And and since then we keep touring. We did we did not keep playing that style of music. Pete has been writing jazz uh, music for a long time. Me not so much. I'm a, I'm kind of a rock player who plays jazz. Where Pete is a jazz player who plays rock. Uh, also, uh, so we reverted to the kind of music that Pete writes and, and to covers of other things. And, and we keep changing and this tour we're about to do, we'll, we're just putting together a list of potential 30 or 40 potential pieces of which we'll pick 15 to do. We're not sure what it'll, it'll be. And we have the wonderful Allie Ryerson, a flute player, uh, whom I played with, I, I backed her up in her band and it'll be a, a treat doing a, a flute-based tour. I'm not sure what music we'll play. So it's, oh, a, nice. it's yeah, great fun, play, as you can imagine, making music with your brother, touring with your brother, pretty great. And uh, we get along great. And we've been making music together since we were kids. So you did, you did play as kids. Was there, what was the, like, tell us a little bit about like growing up with Pete and playing music with Pete, like in your kind of like family musical experience. N- not so much together. Some, but not so much. He's three years older than me. And a better way to describe it is that I followed him my whole life. And I still am. And and I learned, you know, when I was 10 years old, Pete was 13 and doing certain kind of gigs. And I thought, okay. And I learned, the main thing I learned from Pete is to take all gigs, to take all Mm -hmm. offers. He he learned that at a a young age. And I've... The business of yes. Yeah. I've somewhat followed him, not, not to the extent that he did. And I veered off into, uh, well, I stayed with classical longer than he did and veered off into, into rock, which he didn't until later. But still, uh, he's, he's my mentor. He's the, you know, the older brother that I looked up to and followed what he did. And maybe he made a couple mistakes that I tried to avoid because I saw him do it. And uh, great to, after, after maybe 50 years after we could have formed a band, we did. Maybe a whole uh, half a century later, we, we formed that band. So that was fun. By the way, let me say that as kids, uh, he could afford the records 
and I couldn't, so we listened to... Pete was a French horn player, first of all. And, and uh, Julius Watkins, a great uh, jazz French horn player, appealed to Pete. So the, the records that I was listening to were the records with Julius Watkins on them that uh, Pete brought home. And, and I loved them. And, and I got to, as a bonus, I got to hear the amazing Oscar Pettiford, the bass player on all of those albums, who became really a, a what's the word? I learned a lot from listening to the music of Oscar Pettiford, and, and I appreciate that now more than I did at that time. Uh, so it's a great experience, as, as opening any doors to interesting music is for all of us. Uh, French horn in jazz is not easy, man. You got to move. Up. I played French horn in high school, and you have to move a lot of air through a lot of brass just to get one note. And uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty far out. There have only been a few, actually, and a, and a few good ones. But but Julius Watkins stands out and is exceptional. And as you can imagine, there we were when those were new records. They weren't like old uh, gems from the fifties. That it was the fifties, and and yeah, we were inspired by that. Both of us. Not only uh, Julius Watkins, not just his technique on French horn, which was effortless. So it didn't seem like. Like he hadn't heard what you said about the French horn. He didn't know about that. He didn't get that memo, which is great. Yeah. But more importantly, musically, just the phrasing and the mel the melodic sense he had was fantastic. So uh, good stuff. It wasn't about what wasn't possible, and, and 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 that you have to have that kind of. I mean, faith and vision. Really, it's not about I'm not able to keep up. This is how I'm going to use this instrument in this genre or context, and I'm sure you get that a lot where you're playing a synthesizer or you're playing a bass or you're playing a Chapman stick. And it's what's, it's like, you know, with golf, right? You've got your nine iron, right? When you really need to hit it far and maybe you need the putter. Um, so yeah, I kind of like see you out there on the green with all your instruments, you know, like what's Funny. it going to be, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I love this. Let's carry an analogy way too far. I'm with you in this. Yeah. So I got my, my golf bag. <laughs> my Peter, Peter Gabriel golf bag. I'm packing it with uh, all kinds of all kinds of oh, wow. uh, clubs I might need for that. And then and yeah. then I get to the Peter Gabriel session. He says, "Where's that Guild Ashbury bass you played 18 years ago? <laughs> the little plastic thing? Because that's yeah, that's bring the, that. yeah, that's the one I hear for this piece. And then I, I in England, I have to rent one and find one and." Then, yeah. <laughs> Or it's barbershop, right? Maybe it's like, it's not bass at all, or it, like, it's just... Yeah. Well, in the case of the Guild Ashbury, which was about a, I'm guessing a hundred dollar instrument, a little piece of plastic with little plastic strings. When I tried to rent it, uh, I, I found one to rent. Okay. But suddenly, because of that, the price of them, of the instrument went up. The value of, of not my instrument, but all of them. And it became like an $800 instrument. It was a $150 instrument. So if I could fly out there, will you play my stick in public just once? Yeah. Um. <laughs> there you go. For sure. I, I don't know what lesson is to be learned by that, but uh, oh, bring all your, good. put all the instruments in, in the golf golf bag i guess carry a yeah, big golf instead of bag reading the green you're reading the room and the audience <laughs> yeah and yeah that's yeah. yeah sure this analogy can go way too far <laughs> I, I love that i love it
you know, here's something I, I have to, and I kind of wrote down some things that I did want to ask you. And, and you know, I know you do a lot of session work, but I, I'm a StarCraft fan. So I was playing StarCraft and in StarCraft 2, there's a section where I was listening to the music and I thought that could only be Tony. Do you recall this session? Did you do you recall having played the Chapman stick for guys at Blizzard? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't recall it at all, but I think I probably did. Okay, because like you hear it and it's got that and I was like, it's that left, that quick left hand movement, and I was like. There's only one guy that plays it like that. There's only one guy. I have to ask I'll him. I'll have so. to get... The, the problem with me, not only is not having a great memory, and B, it was a long time ago, and C, I never followed up and got the game, so I don't know anything about it. So oh, having, okay. if you can imagine having spent an hour many years ago doing it, uh, I forgot about it, but but I, I know that I played on one thing that was a video game, and, and I'm guessing it was that. And I've made a note of it, and I will buy that it's, game, and I will. No way! You I will play, play. It's a cool. Oh, wow. It's a cool chop. It's a cool chop, and it's like the it's like like flat fretting the in the left hand where you get like the root, the five, and the two, and and uh, is that it? Yeah. And I was like, oh man. Uh, tell me that's not Tony Levin. And I just, and I remember like was playing it. I was like, Hey, wait a minute. You know? And, and then I'm like out there on the, the internets, you know, like trying to track it down and people are, you know, confirming it, you know, and what I'm reading. And so it's just like, this guy's everywhere. It's like everywhere. Wow. Not really. But, but in that case, I think I did play it. Yes. <laughs> that's good stuff. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, on the subject of, of music that I forgot that I played. I'm not proud of that. And it, I, I'm not, I don't, in my life, when I'm not doing an interview or being part of a, a, a podcast, I don't really think about I've done this and and I I haven't done it. You know, like like all of us, I'm, I'm consumed with what it is I'm doing today and a little bit with what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. And and sometimes it's a little embarrassing to have done something really good musically and have forgotten it. But but I've learned to forgive myself for that for for not having a great memory and for yeah yeah I've done a lot of music. But it's it. I just thanks for giving me the chance to point out that it's not really part of my daily life to be aware of the music that I've done before, and it's it's uh, the correct uh, approach I think for a musician like me to approach the new music that I get a chance to play as something new and something special, and to just immerse myself in that. And and I never. Uh, I have, it, but you you guys are seeing what's behind me is my recording desk back there, and and. Uh, my instruments and indeed later today i'll be playing on a track and i won't think well i played this before or i did this or i played this bass before i'll, I'll listen to that music i will immerse myself in that and i'll kind of become a fan of that piece of music and then I'll, some sense inside me will kind of hit, give me a, a direction of what bass would be nice for it or what kind of part and I'll, I'll fool around and experiment with that and that's that's at this stage of my career, I appreciate how lucky I am to be able to do that and how, how special it is for me personally, just to be able to approach new music all the time and, and get to play on it. And what's not important to me is, is cute to hear reminders of something I did many years ago, and I appreciate that. But uh, what's important to me is the, the music I get to play on every day. You know, one of the things I see in myself that I've wondered is, you know, I've got a day job and it takes a lot of my time like anyone else has a day job and music is something I do in my spare time. And I've sometimes wondered 
you, when you're playing music, you always think to yourself, man, I wish I could do this all the time. I wish I could make my living at this. But then I, then I ask myself, well, Victor, is that realistic? Because, you know, maybe if you had to do it every day, eight hours a day, maybe the joy wouldn't be there. And what you've just said kind of speaks to why you as a professional musician that lives and breathes music as both your day job and your passion, it's obvious you've kept it as your passion and you've just explained kind of why. And so that's, <laughs> it's moving forward. It's always, okay, what am I doing now? I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad it works for you, but but I think it's that's in common with all of the players that I play with. I mean, there's nothing yeah. unusual about my approach to it where we don't, any of us discuss, and you know what? Once in a great while, I'll be in a band or in a situation where they'll say, "Well, let's do this like Yes would do it," or let's do. But generally, it's not that way at all. It's just let's do this the way we're going to do it, and that's what we're all about. Yeah, we're we're saying, "What would just Victor do?" <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're asking ourselves. Have you uh, heard of David Byrne's book? Um, David Byrne wrote a book about music and he, he, you're kind of touching on some things that he talked about because he talks about creating a scene and not like creating, like, like freaking out in the coffee shop. You know, he talks about <laughs> like, like creating like a musical scene and, you know, he's, he's back East, you know, and he's like, you, you have to be consistent. You have to strive to do your own thing. And this is your time and this is your space and you're not emulating anybody else. You're trying to find a way to be creative and express yourself through music. And, um, I, I like the talking heads and I enjoyed their music and, um, and, uh, what was it? Um, remain in light is one of my favorite albums and I'm pretty sure Adrian's yeah. on that and he just crushes it on the, the great curve. One of my favorite tracks. And uh, I think that's yeah. how I came to Crimson was through the talking heads. And, le and let's not leave out uh, Tina Weymouth. Great bass parts influenced me a lot. At that time I was getting started with King Crimson and it helped me, turn left and 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 try to be inspired by that yeah the talk well the talking heads did it their own way which i thought was yeah. so cool and, Absolutely. And, and and david byrne really the way he talks about it is it's almost mathematical but it's um it's 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 about creativity and it's about feeling creative and then you have to kind of grow where you're planted you have to fit into this you know what where you are you know obviously you have to um you know, grow where you're planted. And, and, uh, that music and, and kind of what Victor is saying, you know, occasionally you think around, maybe I want to approach it a certain way or I hear a certain thing, but certainly the intent, I think that Emmett had for the Chapman stick and, and why so many people I think relate to it is that it's really without boundaries. And, um, and, and the idea is that there's no idea at all. Right. So it's really like you can play it mono, you can play it stereo, you can do this, you can do that, but, um, the only people who are going to tell you what's not possible are the, probably the people you have to play with. <laughs> Cut that out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, I think I've touched on a lot of the things that I wanted to head on. Uh, I did want to talk to you about, you know, playing in, in all these bands. One of, one of the questions I wanted to ask, or at least get some guidance from you on or your thoughts is that I do see throughout your career, you coming back to these projects that you've played in the past. And so there's this kind of openness to people that you've worked with in the past. And I think that kind of speaks to who you are musically 
where these doors don't close, they just go in different directions. And what would you attribute to that? Mainly luck. <laughs> how, how lucky <laughs> was I in, in July 1976 when a producer I had worked with a lot, Bob Ezrin, asked me to come up to Canada and play on an album with a Peter Gabriel, a guy I had never heard of, who used to be in Genesis, a band I had never heard. And the guitar player on that session was Robert Fripp whom I had never heard of. So on the same day in 76, I met, I don't remember the day, but I met Robert and I met Peter Gabriel and I'm still actively involved making music with both of them. Uh, okay, I could have had something else to do that day. <laughs> you know, I could have been called for a different session and said to, to Bob, oh, sorry, I can't do that. And, and think how different my life would be. So a whole lot of it is luck being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and, and let me say this. Uh, often at the end of interviews, I'm asked if I have any advice for, for young players starting out, and I pretty much don't, as you can tell already from the way I, I live my musical <laughs> life. But uh, one thing worth pointing out to people who are starting is there's this tremendous amount of disappointment inevitably involved in being a, a musician full-time. Uh, and there are times that you just, you weren't there, you weren't able to go to the right call, things didn't work out right for you, or you were rejected for a project that was very important for you, or you were in a band that broke up, or you were in a band that kept going, but without you. And that has, uh, I have veered off into the subject because it's somewhat related to what I was saying, but that's uh, uh, the other half of that coin. And that has happened not only to me, but all of the quote unquote successful musicians that I know, that I've worked with, all of us have been rejected for bands uh, and, and important projects that we, we felt strongly about it. And we, we all react in whatever we, way we can. But those of us who are, are bound and determined to be musicians continue to be a musician and, and somehow find a way to deal with the rejections. So I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit my good luck when I was there at the right time. But sometimes I was unavailable and missed great opportunities. And and sometimes I was maybe even unfairly rejected for something that would have been special to me. And uh, that's part of it. Uh, uh, What's consistent for me is wanting to be a bass player and and up my game and be a better bass player. And uh, I do do indeed at this stage of my career appreciate how lucky I've been uh, with the successes. Tony, tell us about Emmett and your experience with Emmett. Well, I had a long uh, relationship with Emmett for many years when I first wanted to get the stick, which I think was in 76, 75 or 76. Uh, I waited till I was in Los Angeles and then uh, tried to arrange a meeting with him, which I think involved a lesson and trying it out. But he was busy or out of town. So I ended up getting, I don't remember who I bought it from, but someone else associated with him. And, and pretty soon afterwards, I was back there and I took a lesson and we dis- discussed the uh, possibilities of the stick and, and what was involved in it. And a, an interesting change, a, a turn, a, a, a right turn in our relationship came when he came to a Peter Gabriel show. And I think for the first time in his career, 
uh, of making this wonderful instrument, he saw a number of people respond to the instrument uh, in public. He saw it played in public, not in a club, but in a big way, in a big concert. And he saw the possibility for, for people being influenced by having seen me play the stick, which was cute. It was kind of fun. And uh, in the many years that followed, we I always would see him in Utah when I went to Los Angeles, not to talk about the stick, but just to visit socially. And sometimes he came to to, he came to a liquid tension experiment show, definitely loud thing I did uh, uh, one time. He came to many shows I did and always had, uh, those who know him would appreciate this. He always had his unique point of view about the show and what was good about it and what was special about it, different than what everybody else who saw the show thought. And I always valued that a lot. For many years, I would see him at NAM. I never performed at NAM in the stick booth when there was a Chapman stick booth, but I would always visit and spend quite a bit of time. And, and that was actually a precious time to me, not only because NAM is a fraught, uh, uh, for those who don't know, it's a music trade show. And a lot of work for them, for anybody who shows up, except if you show up for fun and to see things. And uh, it was a, a welcome break for me always to go over to Emmett and Yuta's booth, which was a an island of sanity and quiet music, but quiet music in the middle of a, a, an ocean of insanity and very loud, overly <laughs> loud music. And and uh, I was sad when when they decided that it really wasn't doing them any good to be at NAM, and they stopped coming. Uh, so we had a long relationship, wonderful. I consider him a, a very good friend and, and myself a friend of the family and I dearly miss him. And, and uh, I appreciate his contribution to us musicians, aside from as a musician, he was an excellent musician, but but his contribution with this instrument to enable us to 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 have new dreams, to have dream, musical dreams that are different than the ones we had before, especially for me. If you look at what happened to me with the Chapman stick, I, I never dreamed I'll play anything but the bass. Still haven't, except for the Chapman stick. I played the bass, and then the other thing came into my life and opened it up and, and uh, gave me, uh, put into my golf cart a, a golf club <laughs> that I never imagined existed. That could be both a driver and a putter. <laughs> oh, that's he would great. use the golf cart. I mean, it would be the golf cart itself, right? I mean, that's how Emmett would do it. And, like, and had its own wheels. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've come full circle on the golf. Uh, wow, analogy! Yeah, it's been a while since Gene has thrown an analogy into a podcast episode, and here we're now. We are back to it. <laughs> oh, wow! So, Tony, I don't know how to express how much we appreciate your time. And, uh, and this has been wonderful for me to be able to meet you and speak with you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you and your career and all that you've done for the stick. I appreciate all you've done for music. And um, Well, thank you, Victor. Your, your manner and your humility are to be admired. And, and uh, I appreciate that uh, as much as everything else. So to all of you out there that have been listening to this episode of Tap and Time, thank you for tuning in. And we hope that sometime in the next 24 hours, you get the opportunity to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Let's identify the music clips that we heard in this episode. First, we heard part of Tentacles off the Stickman EP, Tentacles. The next selection was from Tony's song, Places to Go, off of his album, Resonator. 
After that, it was Not So Square Dance off the Levin Brothers album. And finally, we heard a clip from Cerulean Sea by Bruford Levin Upper Extremities off their self-titled album. We welcome your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast at gmail.com.